The federal government will need to be seen as a partner and as a supporter of local efforts rather than a big behemoth coming into communities and being perceived as telling the communities how they need to change and how they need to transition. Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, my colleague Ben Cahill is joined by two researchers from Resources for the Future, Daniel Ramey and Wes Luck. Wes and Daniel recently authored a report looking at how to ensure fairness for workers and communities historically dependent on fossil energy economies. They examined policies designed to help these workers transition to jobs in a clean energy economy, and they evaluated a range of policy options necessary for facilitating a just transition in the United States. I'll turn it over to Ben now for this interesting discussion. Daniel and Wes, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, We're here to talk about your series of reports called Fairness for Workers and Communities in Transition, which is focused on challenges for fossil fuel communities and and workers and and policies and programs that can help them. Um, I think this is really important work, and for us it resonates a lot with our own Just Transition Initiative, which has been looking at these questions over the last year, mostly on the international side, not the U.S. side. Uh, So congrats on the reports. There's tons of great material here, uh, really interesting um, thoughts on U.S., energy workers and communities in transition. So to start us off, Daniel, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about this series of reports that you've done. What was the impetus for this project and which topics did you decide to tackle throughout the project? Yeah, thanks, Ben. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having us on. As you know, we are big admirers of your work uh, at CSIS, you and your colleagues. So uh, thanks so much for, uh, for the conversation today. The impetus for the work is pretty straightforward. You know, everyone listening to this podcast knows that there is an urgent need uh, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions across the economy. That means that a major transition in our energy system is needed at unprecedented speed and unprecedented scale. In order to achieve the long-term goals that the international community has articulated in the Paris Agreement or any, any other number of previous agreements, uh, in the UNFCCC context, uh, we're going to need to limit temperature rise, and that means shifting away from fossil fuels, reducing emissions dramatically, uh, and spurring growth in clean energy technologies. Now, the implications uh, of that transition are vast. There are lots of them. One of the really important ones is that the benefits and costs of the transition won't be distributed evenly. There are some individuals and some communities that are likely to be negatively affected, while society as a whole will benefit from the transition. And so from our perspective, an equitable energy transition would reduce emissions while making sure to protect the energy workers and communities that might be negatively affected. That's where our focus has been on this series of reports. But it's also important to acknowledge other individuals and communities that could be negatively affected, such as low-income communities, communities of color uh, who might suffer from a history of environmental or energy injustice that we talk about a little bit in the report. As I said, that's not really our focus, but we do acknowledge uh, its significance uh, and hope to address it more in in the future. So that's really the impetus of the work. We know a transition is needed. We know the benefits and costs will be distributed unequally. And so our hope with this series of reports is to lay out a framework for policymakers to assess which policies they might have at their disposal to address these inequities if and when they arise. 
And Daniel, as part of this series, you've done some case studies on certain communities as well, correct? That's right. So Wes, I think, is going to talk about the kind of policy topics that we cover, uh, which we group into kind of four or five main buckets. But we also do some deep dives in communities in the United States. One of the case studies is focused on a isolated rural community in Montana called Coal Strip, Montana. The name kind of says it all. Um, another case study is focused on the region around Athens, Ohio, which is in Appalachian uh, southeastern Ohio. Uh, and then Wes is finishing up a case study now focused on Tonawanda, New York. So Wes, in, in the summary report, which you just published recently, you identify four big categories of, of policies to help um, advance a just transition or greater fairness for workers and communities. Can you walk us through some of those big buckets of, of different types of policies? You bet. And um, also, I'll, I'll start by saying thank you as well for having us on the podcast. A great pleasure to be here with you guys. Um, so yeah, as you say, Ben, in our recent uh, what we call synthesis report, which wraps together a series of four reports that preceded it, we boiled down the various types of just transition policies that we've identified in our research. And there may be others. We don't claim to have the sort of definitive categorization here. But and these, these categories actually also reflect those four preceding reports. Um, so um, each of the preceding reports is focused on each one of these four categories that I'll talk us through. Um, so workforce development is the first of the four categories that I'll highlight. And we break that into a couple of sort of sub um, components. So the first is job training and career services. And job training is, you know, um, uh, apprenticeship programs, it's programs run by workforce development boards through the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, which is implemented, the majority of it implemented by the Department of Labor's Employment and Training Administration. Um, we also talk about what some might refer to as wraparound services. Uh, we refer to these in our uh, synthesis report as foundational and income supports. So this is supports, um, first of all, like what you get through unemployment insurance, um, you know, this is a very broad national policy. It's not just focused on just transition, but we think it has an important role to play. And then programs like Trade Readjustment Allowance, um, which is part of the Trade Adjustment Assistance Program, and other programs that have, you know, supports for housing or transportation, these, these kind of key needs that will help people participate in the um, labor market. We also talk in that report about labor standards, um, the important role for standards that protect workers in terms of workplace safety, in terms of compensation standards, or even standards that are specifically about advanced notice to workers who will be displaced due to a plant closure or things like that. So there's, there's quite a bit of um, you know, labor standard in the U.S. That's something that the Biden administration has focused on in the American Jobs Plan as well. So workforce development is the first category. Second category I would focus on is economic development. If we are thinking about the worker really as the primary focus of just transition policies, so we maybe we do start with workforce training as the first bucket of solutions that we can think of. Well, we need to make sure, right, that there are jobs that those workers who are now trained can get after a training. I think many of us are probably familiar with that sort of pitfall that we'd have a good workforce training program, but then there's no real pull in the labor market for those skills. Um, so economic development is essential. We look at a number of different components of that. The first is attracting and supporting employers, and that includes policies like the, again, very broadly applied in the United States, New Markets Tax Credit Program. 
you know, which creates tax incentives for businesses to locate in a given area. We also look at policies in the economic development bucket that support public services in communities through federal funding. So the Secure Rural Schools program um, is an example you know, of federal dollars that can support local schools and, and municipal operations. We also look at capacity building, so support for professional skill development and new technology investment, sort of technology transfer programs, and then financial services, so supports for entrepreneurs that have limited access to credit. Um, and that's you know, small business administration loan guarantee programs and the CDFI fund are good examples of that. So we've done workforce development, economic development. The third bucket is infrastructure and environmental remediation. Sort of a lot there. On the infrastructure side, we look at policies that sort of run the gamut from the big highway and public transportation funds. We look at the clean water and drinking water state revolving funds run by the EPA broadband, you know, so all of these kind of key aspects of infrastructure, we think play a really key role in just transition. We also look at environmental remediation policies like the abandoned mine land program and Superfund program, the EPA's brownfield program. So we have this legacy of fossil fuel production or, you know, electricity generation. Oftentimes there's pollution that goes along with it and that cleaning up that pollution is necessary to enable new waves of economic development and to just address um, uh, equity and environmental justice issues. The fourth bucket is probably the broadest. We refer to as public benefits. And this overlaps with what I was describing in the workforce development category as foundational and income support. But this kind of is a broader treatment of that type of policy. So we talk in here about the role of, of very big programs, right, in the United States like Medicaid. Um, we talk about SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or what had been previously understood as food stamps. We look at uh, unemployment insurance and then some more focused programs like the United <coughs> Mine Workers of America pension fund support that has come from the federal government. So those are the four categories. We could go into more detail, but I've probably gone on too much already. So, Thanks, Wes. That's, that's a great overview. Let me touch on one of those categories in more detail. In terms of workforce development, there's a lot of focus these days on how to transition coal workers and, and oil and gas workers uh, whose jobs are at risk. It's a big part of the Biden administration's um, climate plan. We've seen a lot of focus on this in recent weeks, but we know this is pretty challenging, right? I think there's a presumption that coal miners and coal plant workers have skills that are transferable. Those skills can be applied in different sectors. Sometimes there's a focus on helping those workers transition into clean energy jobs, but this is pretty difficult to do. Um, the skills aren't always a perfect match and you don't always have jobs available in the same communities. So Wes, do you think that we tend to gloss over these differences too easily? And can you just unpack some of the challenges of you know, the practicalities of actually helping workers transition from one sector into another? I think it is a, a very important question and, and perhaps is at times glossed over. It is something we touch upon and acknowledge in our research. It's also a topic we've identified for further research. I think some, some additional work be really valuable in ex exactly these areas, both the skill transfer or the dynamics of skill transfer and, and then the geography. Um, will people find work in, in the locations where they live currently? 
first of all, just to, to again, underscore that it is my perspective, and again, this is sort of partially informed by research, but also sort of just my perspective that these are very important things to look at. From the skill transfer perspective, um, one of the basic ways that I look at it is you could think of skills as capital, right? This is capital that workers have in the labor market that enables them to garner a family supporting wage, let's say. Um, and so if our goal is in just transition policy is to help workers um, in transition have the best outcomes possible, then we want to maximize their ability to bring their capital with them as they transition through the labor market. And so that could mean identifying new employment opportunities that, that rely on similar skill sets. That said, you know, one of the things we, we definitely identify in the literature and highlight in our research and especially around workforce development on that workforce development paper is that, you know, every transition situation is going to be different and workers may want to develop new skill sets. Every individual is different, right? And so we also don't want to set up a situation where there's a federal policy that sort of uh, perhaps even unintentionally um, limits workers' ability to move throughout the labor market or also move throughout the economy if they want to move geographically um, freely, right? So while there's benefit, uh, you know, ostensibly to transferring skills, we also don't want to put people in a box. It, one of the things I've highlighted with respect to skill transfer, and I think it dovetails well with this political moment, is that there's arguably a good degree of skill transfer from let's say coal mining, maybe where there is some degree of operation of heavy machinery to infrastructure construction, um, where there's also um, operation of heavy machinery. And infrastructure construction is, uh, we sort of refer to it as a win-win in, in our synthesis report because it, in a temporal sense, it both addresses the immediate need to give people jobs, but it also is then building the conditions for um, economic development and diversification um, going forward. So that's just one specific example. Another thing I would highlight is, and this goes back to the importance of localizing our interventions, which is a challenge for the federal government trying to operate in such a heterogeneous domain and that's the role of workforce development boards which are an administrative structure within the um, workforce innovation and opportunity act again as implemented by the doleta and those workforce development boards are comprised of local business leaders um, local institutions of education education institutions like community colleges other entities so people who represent the local perspective and can identify well what are the skills needed in terms of the new sectors perhaps that are emerging what are the current skill sets of our labor force um, and where do we where do we want to go so they can help chart a course in terms of skill um, skill transfer yeah i think that one of the points you made is really um, especially important, which is that we have to rely on local insights from communities themselves about what kind of future they envision for themselves. They know their skills and their background and their opportunities better than anyone. So it's the idea that there's no one-size-fits-all solution. Daniel, I wonder if we can pivot and talk about one other area where you guys have done pretty substantial research, which is on environmental remediation. Can you talk about what, what types of sites need to be cleaned up and what have we learned from remediation programs that have been around for a long time, like the EPA Superfund program? I wonder if you could also talk about something you mentioned earlier, which is the goal of targeting some of these efforts in communities of color that have traditionally been exposed to a lot more air and water pollution and some of the environmental justice angles in remediation. 
Yeah, it's a great question, Ben. And I think in some ways, the environmental remediation efforts that I'll describe are similar to what Wes characterized as a potential win-win when it comes to infrastructure development. You know, cleaning up polluted sites can lay the groundwork for future prosperity, right? It's an enabling condition, right? It's a, it's a necessary precondition for prosperity that you have a healthy environment uh, for businesses to locate and for people to live. And, you know, for better and worse, there are a lot of polluted sites in the United States, millions and millions of, of polluted sites, you know, to different degrees of pollution. One of the interesting things that most people don't know is that the country's biggest environmental management program is actually run by the Department of Energy. It's the Offices of Environmental and Legacy Management, uh, which is DOE's efforts to clean up uh, the legacy of uh, nuclear weapons and other manufacturing during uh, World War II in particular. We don't focus on those efforts a, a whole lot because they're a little bit different from the other environmental remediation efforts that take place in a larger number of geographic locations. So the programs that we really focus on are the Superfund program, Brownfields program, the Abandoned Minelands program, and the Underground Storage Tank program. These are administered mostly by the EPA, but the Department of Interior administers the Minelands program. And we also talk about the need to remediate coal ash ponds uh, around the country, as well as the need to decommission oil and gas wells safely. So these programs, there is pretty limited research on how effective they are in terms of uh, improving long-term economic outcomes. There is a pretty substantial body of literature from the economics field that demonstrates that cleaning up Superfund sites, brownfield sites, and underground storage tanks substantially increases property values nearby those sites. So it can raise property values by up to 15% when you clean up these sites. And so that's a clear indicator that there are some economic benefits from carrying out these activities. Unfortunately, there's very little evidence on the long-term employment effects of cleaning up these sites. For, again, for better or worse, economists tend not to focus on jobs. They often focus on things like property values because they're a little bit easier to measure. So we really do need some more research to better understand the distribution of the benefits that occur when you clean up these sites. And that gets us to this environmental justice issue, which, as you noted, many Superfund and other polluted sites are located disproportionately in communities of color. And so by addressing these sites, and particularly if a program were targeted towards those communities of color, you could help kind of right some of those historical wrongs that have been uh, effectuated in, in those communities. When we look historically, there is limited evidence that sometimes these cleanup programs are prioritized in higher income and whiter communities. You can sort of imagine from a hyper-rational economic perspective, an irrationally rational economic perspective, that you know you might want to clean up sites in higher income locations or in more prosperous locations because the prospects for redevelopment in those sites from a market perspective might be greater. But then again, you're, with that approach, you're not addressing the historical environmental racism and environmental injustices. And so you need to be very cognizant of that when you're deciding on how to prioritize which sites to clean up uh, and when. And then the last thing to say is that there have been some concerns that cleaning up sites could lead to something called environmental gentrification. So you can imagine if there's a low-income community and that community is you know, suffering from pollution, if you clean up that pollution, 
you could have higher income people relocate to that community to take advantage of the great environment that now exists. Uh, and so you would want to be careful that those cleanup efforts did not kind of lead to a perverse outcome where the people that you're trying to help are ultimately forced out of the community. And again, this is something where there's very limited research on, so it would be great to have more quantitative evidence on exactly how, uh, how much of a concern this is in the real world. Thanks, Daniel. Let's stick with this topic of, of site cleanup uh, for just a minute. I know, Daniel, you've done a lot of work on the idea of plugging abandoned oil and gas wells. The Biden administration has made this a pretty big part of its American jobs plan. They've allocated $16 billion to plugging abandoned oil and gas wells and also mine cleanup. And it's really being touted as a way of solving two challenges, you know, the environmental challenges that you just described, but also job creation, including for a lot of fossil fuel workers who are, who are out of work. But it does raise questions about how many jobs can actually be created by these types of programs and whether or not these will be short-term gigs or if it's something that's more sustainable and more of a long-term employment solution. Can you talk a little bit about those, those two questions? Yeah, sure. This is such an interesting area. And as you said, I, I've been working particularly on the orphaned wells thing uh, for, for much of the last year or so. We published a report with um, Jason Bordoff and Neelish Narukar from the Columbia Center on Global Energy Policy uh, almost a year ago now, where we estimated, based on surveys of state regulators, that cleaning up an orphaned oil and gas well, on average, is associated with about a quarter of a job year per well. So you can imagine if you plug 10 wells, then that's about two and a half job years, or like person years of work. Mm -hmm. So as you scale up higher to higher and higher levels, there is absolutely a potential to put a lot of people to work. And that's because there are literally millions of these things around the United States. There are 2.1 million unplugged abandoned wells in the United States. Those wells have owners and they should be decommissioned safely at the end of their lives by those owners. However, state regulations uh, and federal regulations don't properly incentivize those owners to actually decommission the wells safely at the end of their lives. As a result, when companies go bankrupt, which they often do, especially in uh, downturn uh, of commodity prices, you can have a lot of wells become orphans. Essentially, they're, they're wards of the state. They don't have owners anymore. And so the state is on the hook to clean them up. So this is what the Biden administration is proposing to do to kind of make a down payment uh, to plug the inventory of roughly 55, 60,000 orphaned wells that are scattered around the country. Now, if you were to plug that number of wells, you're looking at maybe 10,000, 12,000 job years uh, of work. And so that's helpful for sure for the oil and gas workforce, but it doesn't get the kind of long-term scalability that you're alluding to. Now, for, for better and for worse, once again, there are hundreds of thousands of orphaned oil and gas wells that exist. We actually don't know where they are. We have good reason to think that they exist. We know kind of roughly where they are. They're kind of in some parts of Pennsylvania, and they're probably in some parts of California and Texas and elsewhere, um, but we don't have them mapped. And so if policymakers had an appetite to find and plug all of those you know, hundreds of thousands of wells, then we could be talking about lots of jobs uh, for a sustained period of time, but it's all about priorities. It just depends on how much do policymakers prioritize plugging orphaned wells versus other activities that they might want to incentivize in the economy, right? There's a limited pool of money out there. So, you know, where do orphaned oil and gas wells rank in that priority list? Uh, I think we need more research and better research to actually answer that question 
We know that orphaned wells emit methane, but most orphaned wells emit very little methane. A few of them emit a lot. Uh, and once again, th there's an information problem. We don't know which ones are most likely to be most leaky. And so if we knew that, then we could better prioritize and really focus on those high emitting orphaned wells. But again, we need more research uh, to better prioritize those efforts. Yeah, it's somewhat alarming that we don't know where <laughs> all these orphaned wells are and that mapping work seems really quite important. Yeah, I mean, people um, literally trip and fall over them in the in the hills of Pennsylvania when they're out hunting. And it's like, you know, it's, it can pose a serious safety risk. Um, it's also just, just incredible that the scale of this issue, that there are hundreds of thousands of these things out there and we really don't know where they are. Yeah, and it's both an onshore and an offshore issue, correct? Yeah. yeah. Wes, let me turn to you. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you've learned throughout this project on the interaction between federal and, and state policies. It seems like throughout this series, you've had a pretty strong focus on on federal government policies. But I wonder what you've learned about areas of disconnect between federal and, and state or local policies. So can you talk a little bit about the interaction between federal and state policies and you know conflicts, how those are resolved, and also whether or not there's a you know potential for the federal policies to learn from what's being done at the state and local level in some cases? You bet. And maybe I'll start with some examples from the state level that might make sense to explore um, at the federal level. The first that comes to mind is the process uh, that's been underway in Colorado for a couple of years, which established a, I forget the exact language, Just Transition Advisory Committee, I think it, it is. And it's an example of um, really deliberate and well-coordinated stakeholder engagement around planning for a just transition. I mean, one of the things that we talk about in our most recent report is this sort of essential role of planning as a way to, as much as possible, get ahead of the dislocating or disruptive effects of, of energy transition. And um, Daniel has really kind of opened my mind to the extent to which this particular transition is one that is perhaps a bit more foreseeable. And he and I have had some debates about this internally, but I think there's a lot of merit to that perspective that if, you know, if we know that the United States economy is going to decarbonize over the next, you know, 20 years or so, or even shorter, then we kind of foresee um, the process by which and a timeline by which communities are, are, are going to transition, you know, individual um, coal-fired electricity generation plants are going to shut down, coal mines are going to shut down, et cetera. And so we can plan for that in a bit, in a bit more of an informed way. Um, and so this Just Transition Advisory Committee, if I've got that right, is I think sort of a, um, a banner example of good planning. And it's good planning in the sense that it engages a diversity of stakeholders. So it's not just government agencies or entities, although it does involve government agencies, but it also involves, you know, people from the business community, people from labor, um, representatives from various NGOs. Um, and so it, it sets up a process that is often, you know, for folks who have worked in policymaking, this stakeholder engagement and multi-party um, negotiation, frankly, that needs to happen is how we develop policy. And oftentimes it's done in an ad hoc fashion. And it also can be done in this very organized, deliberate way. And, and so I think that's what that process in Colorado does. It's, it's a process that um, has examples abroad as well. So the German Coal Commission is an example from Germany. Canadian government has had a, a similar process. 
Scotland has had a similar process in the UK. Um, so we're seeing these kind of just transition committees or panels established. <clears throat> Another example, I think, of how interaction between federal and state governments, in my opinion, and I um, you know, still have a limited knowledge of the exact details of how these programs are implemented, but I've really um, been impressed in learning about, again, how the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act programs are set up, where there are federal funds um, that are transferred to state governments, and the state governments have these state workforce development boards um, that then identify priorities for the state in terms of what sorts of um, workforce training they want to prioritize and generally what sort of labor market development needs they have in their state. And they then send that money down to the local level to local workforce development boards. And I talked about them earlier where they <clears throat> similarly kind of comprise a group of stakeholders that represent a diversity of perspectives in their communities that are setting priorities for workforce training. And and I would highlight that also as you know the third key piece of governance here is we talk often about federal and state, but we really need to look, go to that next level of local government as well to make sure that there's coordination across all of those partners in governance. Um, and the, the workforce development boards uh, um, as part of the WIOA, uh, I think are good examples of that. Another example that I think probably fits within this category of good sort of vertical coordination, vertical between levels of government, is the Appalachian Regional Commission. Um, and if listeners are not familiar with the Appalachian Regional Commission or the ARC, um, it's a commission that was set up by the federal government to address the specific economic development needs of the Appalachian region. Um, it, it spans 13 states. It has a federal co-chair and then a rotating state co-chair um, represented by one of those 13 states, and each state has a rotation in that role. Um, and then it has <coughs> what are called local development districts that partner. So it becomes a good forum for addressing some of those conflicts and also, you know, most intelligently identifying economic and workforce development priorities. Thanks, Wes. So both of you have focused a lot on the role of government in advancing just transitions. Uh, but of course, a lot of really interesting work is being done at the grassroots level in coal communities across the country, whether it's Appalachia or Wyoming. I'm thinking, for example, of the, the Just Transition Listening Project with Mijin Chan and other colleagues that have done some really interesting work on mapping out groups across the country at the local level that are doing innovative work and thinking about workforce development, um, helping communities map out an economic future. So, Daniel, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about non-government actors in this space and the role of NGOs, local organizations, philanthropists to complement what the federal government is doing or to fill some of the gaps. What have you come across that you think is, is interesting and innovative in this regard? That's such an important topic. And um, and I love that work from the Just Transition Listening Project. It's th Their work is really fascinating. Another great organization that I point to is the Just Transition Fund that also, you know, they've been focused on coal communities and helping coal communities plan uh, for transitions that are, you know, very place specific to try to take advantage of the strengths that they have uh, and address the weaknesses that they have. Because uh, as Wes said, and as you said, every place is different and the solutions uh, in Coal Strip, Montana are going to vary from the solutions in Athens, Ohio, or Tonawanda, New York, or Kern County, California, or Midland, Texas, or wherever else. And so, you know, our focus has been on policy, because that's what we do. We do research on policy. But one of the most important things that we're taking away from this work is that 
the federal government, in partnership with state, local, and tribal governments, should really seek to tap into that local expertise uh, and that local visioning process wherever it exists. If it's coming from NGOs, if it's coming from local governments, if it's coming from local activist groups, if it's coming from labor unions uh, within communities, there are lots of resources that exist at the local level. The challenge for the federal government is going to be, you know, bringing this big ship of state and allowing it to tap into those local resources and to have buy-in from local participants. Everyone listening to this podcast knows that the federal government is not always received with warm and welcome arms when it comes into a community. And so the process of building up some trust and making sure that local stakeholders have a driving seat at the table. Uh, the federal government will, will need to be seen as a partner and as a supporter of local efforts rather than a big behemoth coming into communities and being perceived as telling the communities how they need to change and how they need to transition. So this is as much a policy problem as it is a sociological problem and a, a messaging and communication problem. Uh, and that's something that we think policymakers will need to take really seriously, regardless of the nuts and bolts of the policies that get implemented, uh, doing that really deep engagement with local leaders from wherever they come from uh, is just going to be such an important piece of this puzzle. Yeah, what's fascinating about the, the energy transition issue is it's, it's intensely local, and yet it's happening in so many communities, not just in the U.S., but around the world right now. The focus on just transitions has really expanded so much in the last couple of years. And clearly, you know, we have a lot of big problems to tackle in the U.S., but this is very much an international issue that's on the international agenda, and it's really being linked with climate policy in a way that, you know, it wasn't really until the Paris Agreement, and it's really been picking up momentum. So I wonder if both of you could talk a little bit about how you see the momentum picking up behind Just Transitions ahead of the COP26 conference this fall with the growing focus on, on Just Transitions in the international climate space. Uh, Wes and Daniel, just curious about the connections that you see between some of these policies and debates in the U.S. and what's happening internationally uh, with some of the issues on energy transition and how they're playing out around the world. Well, I'll, I'll just say something really briefly and then turn it over to Wes because he's been focused more on what's going on abroad than I have. And this is, you know, might seem a little bit off topic, but I've been thinking a lot about uh, COVID vaccines and how poorly the international community has done in equitably distributing COVID vaccines. And, you know, that is going to have major implications, not just for you know, countries in the global south, low-income uh, communities around the world who will suffer because of that. But it's also going to come back and bite, you know, the rich economies that are, uh, you know, going to be subject to mutant strains of the virus. And so, you know, I think there's really an analog to climate change here in that, you know, this is truly a global problem. And if it's going to be effectively addressed, rich countries are going to need to work more closely with the international community to try to ensure that the benefits of the transition don't just accrue to those in high-income countries uh, with white skin. <laughs> uh, and to really put additional focus and additional effort on not just reducing emissions, but enabling that real equitable transition um, that we've talked about. And I know that that's a Herculean task. I know I'm asking a lot, but I think it's going to be really important. Yeah, and I can add, and actually, 
if it's okay, I wanted to just briefly underscore what Daniel was saying previously about local engagement. Um, and this is sort of the global to local maybe um, reference here. But I just so echo what Daniel was saying about, you know, the local stakeholder engagement. And I sort of, if there are any policymakers listening to this podcast, I encourage them to think about how administrative structure is developed within these policies that is specifically designed to achieve that. Again, not to just sort of hope that that happens or to sort of generally have an intention, but to establish structures that require that or that are predisposed to facilitate that local engagement. And one interesting example is a program called, um, it's a federally chartered nonprofit called the NeighborWorks America program. And some of our colleagues have done some research looking at how a similar program could be developed in the just transition space. But it's, it's a federally chartered nonprofit that essentially provides support to a bunch of local nonprofits that are all independent. Um, so it's, it's potentially one, one interesting example for federal policy that does administratively, you know, in its DNA, uh, engage local actors. On the question of, you know, how is this playing out internationally? Um, first of all, I would say that um, you know, Daniel mentioned we were doing some work on just transition in other countries. That's primarily been in Europe. And I want to just say, as, as you all have done a great deal of reporting on um, and are very familiar with yourselves, that there is a lot of work being done in um, the European nations and in the United Kingdom um, looking at these same questions of just transition. And they're grappling with, with issues in a very similar manner. I mentioned the German Coal Commission as, as one example of that. And then the sort of policy making, the legislative efforts that have um, come out of the recommendations of the German Coal Commission. So we are seeing we're seeing quite a groundswell of activity. I'll just say that. You know, I think that going back to the Paris Accord, we see the inclusion of the just transition language in the UNFCCC framework. Um, so we're seeing the acknowledgement there. Um, the International Labor Organization um, for a number of years has had um, these guidelines for a just transition. I think it's technically called Guidelines for a Just Transition Toward Environmentally Sustainable Economies and Societies for All. Um, and that document... Catchy title. <laughs> indeed. Um, um, that document, I think, has continually been referred to as a roadmap coming from the ILO to provide sort of guidance in that international context. One thing that I'll say as a researcher that I'm very interested in is to see the different responses from from various nations to this issue and to try to um, facilitate as much cross-pollination as possible. RFF has a partner organization based in, um, in, in Italy, research institution, CMCC, and we've learned a lot. And I just, I'm curious um, to see which forums pop up that facilitate that kind of cross-pollination between policymakers themselves, not just between think tanks and researchers. So um, hopefully we'll see some more of that. Well, I think we're about out of time for today, but this conversation will certainly continue. But thanks so much for being with us today and sharing all of your thoughts and your insights. Thanks to Ben, Wes, and Daniel for sharing their research and insights with us today. You can find a link to the paper that Wes and Daniel and their colleagues published in our bio. And as always, you can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts at CSIS.org. And as always, follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. Thanks for listening. <laughs>